This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. You are listening to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, cycling hotspots right here at home, Martian mystery clues, and a York Region ambulance is headed to none of it. But first, here we go again. Another rate hike. Canadians have been stoic as they continue to face financial headwinds brought on by inflation and rising interest rates. But this last one, the 10th in just the past year and a half, is leaving many feeling hopeless and helpless. We begin with a very telling survey. Dave Krasinski, Research Director, Angus Reid Institute, joins us now from Kelowna, B.C. Thank you very much for your time on this. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much for having me. So this latest rate hike, you were very quick out of the gate to issue a survey. Why were you so keen to get Canadians' thoughts on this most recent hike? Yeah, that we, this is something that we have been tracking the the financial challenges um, throughout COVID. It, it kind of it was it was a bit of a, a refocusing on on one of the things that we wanted to track. Um, in addition to some of the health challenges that people were having, was how are people enduring this financially? And as we've come out of that uh, pandemic era. We have, have entered the, the interest rate era, um, and it's, it's something that I think people are becoming a little bit more comfortable with monetary policy than maybe they had previously thought possible. Uh, a lot of people trying to, you know, look at on, on Google and figure out what, why is the Bank of Canada increasing rates? What is the interest rate? And where are these, where is inflation coming from? Um, and what we found is that 60% of Canadians say that they think that this this latest interest rate hike will have a negative impact on their finances. And 34% say this is going to be a significant negative impact. Um, and what we found is that that's, that's quite a bit higher than um, if you go back you know, 10 months or so to September when the interest rate was increased to 3.25%. We asked the, the same question and we had 26% who said that it would be a significant negative impact. So that number has jumped eight points now, um, which is really when you break it down is a lot of uh, adults in Canada who are anticipating real challenges. Um, the number who think this is going to be positive for them, it's very low. It's about 10% of Canadians uh, who think that it's going to improve their, their financial situation. And just one in five, 22%, say it's not going to have an impact on them. Those tend to be higher income individuals. Um, so it's lower income people who are looking at this and saying, you know, I'm already having a tough time and this is actually going to make it worse. Did you ask Canadians what they thought of this decision and what they think about the Bank of Canada and its policy right through this particular time? If you hearken back to, let's say, 2015, the rate was 0.5%. Imagine that. Mm-hmm. And, and there may have been a sense of complacency when it came to Canadians and their money at that point. Yeah, and, and the, the biggest thing that we're seeing just on that first question, too, is, is homeowners. Um, it's, it's, you know, 68% of, of those who are, are having a challenge paying their mortgage say this is going to significantly negatively affect them. Um, so I think that's where you, you see the biggest issue. And 
we started asking this actually when, uh, because we had those historically low rates for such a long period of time, we started asking uh, a question about, you know, how you feel about the Bank of Canada, what you would like to see them do uh, in May 2021, when they had just increased the rate, I believe it was it was 0.5 uh, at the time, up to 1%. And Canadians were actually pretty supportive of that. We had 27% who said they would continue to raise interest rates beyond that. Um, 45% said that they were comfortable with that. So that's a very large portion of, of Canadians. You're talking about almost three quarters who said that they were either comfortable with it or they would raise it further. It's a similar number when you look at last September, 25% say that they would raise rates further. Now, however, as we see this taking hold and we see some of the spin-off impacts that it's having on Canadians, particularly homeowners, but also renters who are kind of caught up in, in that tension and, and the, the spiraling of costs, just 11% of Canadians would continue to raise rates now. 36% say that they, they would rather see them lowered, which is about triple the number that we saw in May 2022. So you can really see Canadians uh, shifting their what they would like to see, their expectations from the Bank of Canada, and feeling a little bit overwhelmed now. And this is, you know, we're about, I think, six weeks ahead of the next announcement, where a lot of people anticipate that uh, the rate will increase slightly again. Um, so I think there's a lot of uh, consternation. People, particularly those who are having a hard time, are looking at this and saying, this is making it worse for me. And then there are those uh, opponents of this action who say that's that's the design of this. You know, it's it. The Tiff Macklin, the Bank of Canada head, has said that you know employment rates are are simply too high. We've we need unemployment to rise slightly to kind of cool things off. So it is a, a, a an interesting kind of philosophical, socio political conversation <laughs> that I think Canadians are becoming a little more acquainted with uh, and and are a little more critical of these days. And you know, Tiff and his Bank of Canada saying that we need to find a way to stop Canadians from spending money. Which which to me just mm-hmm. kind of flies in the face of everything, quite frankly. And that unemployment-employment issue, that really just leaves me scratching my head. Yeah, and, and if you actually look at some of the data, we are seeing people cutting back. That's that's what I think was interesting with this particular trend was um, the inflation numbers that came out about a week after the increase uh, in, in the, the rate were actually pretty strong. Uh, you see Trudeau and, and Christia Freeland and others touting the fact that we've got the lowest inflation rate in the G7. So a lot of people are looking at this and saying, okay, well, if, if inflation is improving, are, is it necessary to be uh, kind of increasing the challenges for lower-income Canadians? You've got 63% of Canadians currently who say they're cutting back on discretionary spending. Um, we've seen that number right around two-thirds for the last eight to ten months. Um, half of Canadians say they're delaying major purchases. Uh, so there, there are these, these behavioral um, changes are really manifesting. Um, so... The Bank of Canada would say that we need more time to to play this out. It will take a while before these monetary policy changes really impact the economy. But we're seeing it on the consumer side in Canadians, at least telling us that they really are cutting back uh, and and are kind of preparing for these challenges. And another key finding in your Angus Reid report was this, and I find it a bit disturbing. Forty percent of Canadians are cutting back on charitable donations because of these difficult Mm -hmm. economic times. That's got to have a huge ripple effect. 
It does, and you see this at food banks. Uh, a lot of them seeing the, the, the dual challenge is higher demand and lower donation rates, um, which is something for, I think, more for provincial governments, more for people who are, are still doing well uh, at this time to really think about what they can do to help out the situation for people who are having challenges. Um, we really see there was a study that came out earlier this year that said 30% of charities in Canada said that they had noticed a significant drop in revenue. Um, and if you look at the number who are cutting back, it's up 13 points from last summer, from 27 to 40%, saying that they're scaling back donations. So that's where a lot of, when you're looking at where to uh, cut back in your finances, a lot of people look at those charitable donations first because it's something that you can cut back and it doesn't really impact your family negatively. It's just that you might not be helping people as much as you might like. So. Uh, we like to, to keep a tr- a tr- keep track of that one just so people who are in a really strong financial position might maybe look in and say maybe I could could pitch in and help out there um, because it's it's a pretty tough time for those who are doing some of this important work in Canada. Well, all eyes will be on the Bank of Canada in September, their next rate decision, and we'll be watching for an Angus Reid survey right after that happens. And Dave Korzynski, thank you. Always a pleasure having you on the sh- uh, show, Research Director, Angus Reid Institute. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks, Anne. And now for some financial pain relief. Janet Gray is with Money Coaches Canada and is based in Ottawa. She specializes in financial planning for cash flow, debt management, and life transitions. Thanks for joining us on the show, Janet. Good to have you with us again. My pleasure. So you sent me some information that I'd forgotten about. From July 2010 until really about a year and a half ago, interest rates were really, really low. In fact, July 2015 half a percent. Those were the days, my friend. They were, absolutely. And I think a lot of us forget that. And and COVID kind of convoluted a lot of that for us, too. Like, it just happened all at the same time, a perfect storm, maybe. Um, but we got complacent. We got confident. We got totally optimistic about those low rates. And then, whoops, then they kind of, you know, turned into this, this increasing rate. And there's all kinds of reasons. And the Bank of Canada will tell you what those are. Um, but yeah, the pain just increased and, and here we are. And so now July, uh, 2023, it's at 5%. What does this mean to people who are servicing lines of credit or have mortgages when it comes to renewal? What is this all going to mean to them and, and their money? Absolutely. It's, it's difficult. It's, it's, if they're able to service the interest now, which, you know, for some people it could jump, you know, hundreds, thousands of dollars, maybe, um, in, in just interest payments. So if they're fortunate enough to be able to maintain and pay the interest owing, they may not be making a dent in their principal, which means they're pushing that further down the road. So for people that are getting ready to retire and thinking, okay, my mortgage would have been paid, and that's a retirement goal for many, my mortgage would have been paid by this point, it's not going to be paid by that point if they had a variable mortgage rate, or even if they're going into renewal and having to pay more on their fixed rates it's going to push it further down the road. So it's going to upset a lot of retirement plans for people. You know, also living and living well. There are people out there and, and you know, we, I really feel for them that are having to choose between paying their mortgage or their rent and and eating. Very much. It's very much a time where where they need to, you know, put their money where where is the most um, fortunate or the most productive, which, you know, food, shelter, um, and then trying to maybe um, um, 
mitigate some of the payment on the other side and, and not to negate that you should pay, you know, you need to pay your debt. But, you know, when it comes down to life fundamentals, the debt may take a second, second place for a little bit anyway. Why does it seem to me, and I'm just a regular schmo, I am nothing, I have no, uh, you know, experience when it comes to to heavy-duty financial stuff, why does it seem that every time the Bank of Canada raises rates, which is frequently, <laughs> I notice an, uh, an increase in the price of groceries? And I noticed that just the other day. I was shopping at a regular spot that that claims to have low prices. I buy brand buds, and they were $5.99. And then they, the last increase, they went up to seven ninety nine. This most recent increase, they're now close to nine dollars for a very small box. Yeah, and and it's because the interest rates are hitting everybody, not just at the private level. I mean, corporations, businesses, governments are all paying more more higher interest for the money that they have to borrow. So of course, it filters down to the average consumers because you know they have to pay their higher costs. They have to pay their higher. Uh, wage costs if they can find if they can find employees. So that, I mean, there's a lot of things that going back to that perfect storm that are kind of contributing to this, um, where it's hitting us average people at at this level where our groceries are costing more because all the way up the chain and then back down the chain there are cost increases. Because you know, of the interest rate. This is awfully painful. It really is. It's painful for a lot of Canadians. It's difficult. It's It seems like it's endless. It seems like there's no end in sight. You have created some really interesting tips. They're substantial. They're substantive. They're, they're, they make sense and dollars and cents to me. So let's begin with the first one. Focus and prioritize. What do you mean by that? I think it's very much, you know, taking a step back, find some quiet time and just, you know, contemplate again what your priorities are, what, what are your necessities? And then, of course, make sure that those are paid. Like I said, some of them are obvious. They're your rent, your, your mortgage, your, you know, your food, um, utilities, all those kind of things are, are priorities. Those are necessities. And then make sure that they are always paid first. And then that gives you some comfort to know that, okay, you know, life might be sucking a little bit right now, but I know that the basics are covered. What do you say to your kids? It's summer and you're you're struggling financially. They want to be involved in sports and other activities that, that their friends are involved in, cost money. How do you deal with that? A hard conversation for sure. Um, depending on the age of your kids, some of them will understand because, you know, they heard rumblings. They might have picked up some stuff online about, you know, about difficulties. I think it's only fair to say to them that, you know, this is a time where we have to make choice. We can do this, but we can't do that. But, you know, let's talk about the pros and the cons of each of the two, and you get to choose one. And then that does become one of your priorities. So maybe your your priority is this year that each kid gets a sport up to a cash level of this much, because anything more than that is going to push too much pressure and stress on the family. And I think share that with them and just say, you know, this is a time of, you know, unprecedented, and we have to make a decision as a family, and here's our choices. Tip number two for financial pain relief, be patient. I think so. As a society, we're not really patient, are we? We expect results like instantaneous, and even that's too long. So really you want to maybe look at setting some of your purchases later. Maybe the family trip isn't going to happen this year. Maybe the replacement of the car or some some of your appliances, some of those larger things may not happen this year. You may not be able to save this year. People that are kind of, okay, well, I always have a couple of extra $100 a month. I'm going to be able to set that aside, not this year potentially, because, you know, until the interest rates decrease, 
some of those things may not happen. So be patient. It will circle back. We're already seeing some some uh, re- increases and some effect of those um, increases um, on the economy. So that's very positive, and I think you'll see it come back. Number three is ask for assistance. Ask for help. Ask for help. It, it's you know it's happening to all of us, and there's no shame, no blame in talking to you know financial experts, your bank, your mortgage lender, and just say what are some of the options available to me at this point, and tell them because the worst thing would be is that you're not communicating with your lenders and then it's going to impact your credit score. It's going to impact your relationship with them. So reach out to them and just say, here's the challenges I'm having. How can you help me? Next tip, look everywhere for ways to save. You could almost make it a game. And, and, you know, I I have a Scottish background, so, you know, we always look for ways to save money. (laughs) And I, I think a lot of it is just look everywhere. If you can you know, buy two for one, then sometimes it's less expensive. If you can use coupons, sometimes when you walk in the grocery store, they have a coupon board. You know, there's there's some of my meals right there because I can save a buck or two over here. Um, look for, there's some apps that you can use. I like the, the app called Flip, F-L-I-P-P. It, it looks at all, this, all the flyers that are published and it says, here's your best buy on chicken. Here's your best buy on, you know, some of the staples that we buy, eggs, milk. Um, and then also just, you know, really look at maybe some public events that are free. Like you don't have to pay for everything that you do, but just be very specific on, you know, it's a, it's a game. And again, maybe bring your kids into that too. How can we find things that are, here's 10 free events. Which one do we want to go to this weekend? And, and really make it kind of a, a, a life goal for at least a short time so that you can feel better about, I saved a buck, which is a buck I can spend somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Last but far from least, use this as a learning opportunity. And you've already alluded to that when it comes to your children. But what about for you? This could be a learning experience. I think so. Because again, in, in looking back and reflecting on what's important to you and, and paying attention to your numbers and how you can save money, you have increased your financial literacy, which means when things normalize, you still have that knowledge. And maybe you won't spend as much as you spent you know, unconscious spending where, where you weren't able to, you know, where did that money go? Well, maybe now you have a better idea of where that goes. And I think, again, bringing the family into that discussion helps them to understand that sometimes parents have to make tough choices. It's not all about always giving them to the kids because kids, they don't understand, they'll take it anyway. But, you know, if you have some, some more intelligence around your money and more connection to your money, I think that's a huge financial lesson for everyone. Janet Gray, Money Coaches Canada, thank you for your time. And what's that expression? Time is money. <laughs> we really appreciate, you, really appreciate your free advice on this one. And I mean that. Thank you so much. Coming up next on the feed, now this is very cool. York Region paramedics answer the call in none of it. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. York Region paramedics are putting a decommissioned ambulance back on the road. Jim Lang with that story. 
Well, this is a great story. York Region and the York Region Paramedic Services teaming up to donate a retired ambulance to a community in Nunavut that really could use this vital piece of equipment. To talk more about it, I'm thrilled to be joined by Chris Spearin, the chief of York Region Paramedics. I think this is fantastic and, and a great way to to make sure this equipment, which is state-of-the-art, but at the end of its life here in the region, get to great use. And I had no idea there were so many communities in Canada's far north who had no access to proper ambulances. Yeah, to be honest, we were we were quite surprised too when we were approached by um, by this organization called Ambulances for NU. Uh, we were quite surprised that the, the access to ambulances was um, was as, was as limited as it was in the in the north. So uh, we were happy to to try and work with them to uh, to donate uh, two ambulances this year up uh, into Nunavut, uh, one into Baker Lake and one into uh, uh, Cambridge Bay. So in, incredibly important equipment, and we're you know incredibly um, proud and excited to be able to donate. Uh, equipment uh, to those in need for sure. And, and Chris, the thing that shocked me was the fact that without these ambulances from York Region, these communities in Nunavut were driving people around in the back of a pickup in the dead of winter in the far north. Yeah, exactly. So uh, multiple types of vehicles are being used as ambulances in, in some of those communities. And like you said, pickup trucks, cars, whatever it may be, but really didn't allow for any type of ongoing medical care or any stabilization in the back in the those vehicles. So uh, we're hearing that this will make a great, great deal of uh, difference in those communities so people can actually, you know, receive treatment and, and uh, safe medical care on their way to, uh, to, to the community hospitals or our uh, nursing stations. I know anyone who's been at a community event in York Region, Chris, and have seen the York Region paramedic vehicles, there's specialized equipment inside. What, what, is that equipment going with the ambulances to Nunavut? Uh, no, typically what we do is we donate the vehicle uh, itself. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'll donate a stretcher with it um, uh, if it's uh, if we have one available. But typically, it's the vehicle goes by itself uh, up to those communities, and then the equipment is is um, uh, put in those vehicles by the communities it's going to. I know that the it's basically the uh, I guess status, and it's the a standard operating procedure for York Region paramedics that after five years at two hundred fifty thousand kilometers, you retire the vehicle and get a new one. How often does a vehicle actually make it to five years? I would imagine you get to 250K well before five years with the amount of driving in the region. Yeah, so it's amazing, actually. Just for some context, we drive about 3.9 million kilometers a year in our fleet. Um, so our vehicles, are they, they get a lot of use. So we, we do have a fleet uh, team here who's uh, extremely skilled at making sure our vehicles are well-maintained and, and kept on the road and operating at high efficiency. So... Um, you know, we, we do get the vehicles to that to that time um, to the five year two hundred fifty thousand kilometer mark, um, and but when they get there, they're also fairly well maintained. So that's why it makes it such a great opportunity to donate to a community in need, um, who will definitely not be driving the kilometers that our fleet would would use. So although it may not be uh, suitable for our fleet anymore, um, just given the number of sheer kilometers we're driving, um, it, it is quite useful to, to communities uh, who would be doing less traveling and in need of the ambulance for sure. Indeed, speaking to Chris Barron, the Chief of York Region Paramedics. And Chris, maybe for the listeners, for, for new uh, ambulances and paramedic vehicles that they see driving around the region, what is some of the state-of-the-art equipment that you have in the back there to keep people alive in times of need? Yeah, so every ambulance uh, every ambulance you see in the region is equipped exactly the same. So we standardize them uh, um, regardless of the level of care. Uh, if it's a primary care or an advanced care paramedic working on the vehicle, they're all standardized the same. So typically you would see um, every every one of our vehicles has a power load stretcher, so a specific stretcher that's meant uh, to limit the, not, the amount of lifting that every paramedic uh, has to do because that, that was creating several uh, significant injuries in our 
uh, profession and having people end their careers early. So every every ambulance has a state of the art um, uh, power stretcher. Uh, we also have you know probably 30 to 40 medications depending on the ambulance that are being carried uh, for different types of treatment. Uh, advanced airway equipment. Uh, there's cardiac monitors, uh, which are state of the art. They um, you know they can monitor oxygen levels. They can monitor monitor um, your heart rhythm. They can they can provide defibrillation if needed. Uh, we also can do um, ECGs or electrocardiograms that would be done in the emergency department and make decisions as to whether, you know, patients would go to a local hospital or go right to a, a cardiac center uh, for immediate um, uh, uh, catheterization or uh, PCI. So, so lots of equipment that's used in uh, in that, and then the technology in the vehicle in terms of mapping, GPS, all all that equipment is you know state of the art to make sure that we're able to respond as quickly as possible. But also once we get on scene, be able to provide you know, significant amount of medical care to be able to stabilize and uh, either transfer you to the hospital or now, you know, in the last in last year we've had treat, um, protocols where we're actually able to treat and, and maybe actually release you on scene and not actually have to take you to the hospital. So a lot of change in the last several years in our, in our profession in our, in New York region. Oh, Chris, you and your team do fabulous work every day, 24 hours a day in the region. It's deeply appreciated by myself and the listeners. Thank you so much for taking the time and great work donating that vehicle, the Nunavut, that's going to make a huge difference to another part of this country. That's great. Thank you so much, and thanks for your support. Greatly appreciated. The ambulance will leave the docks in Quebec in early August. It'll take about two weeks to land in Cambridge Bay, Nunavut. So they expect that the ambulance will be in the community in Nunavut at the end of August or early September. Shaliza Backus is next, and the 360 Kids' new housing project for at-risk youth. Affordable housing is a persistent issue amongst our communities in York Region and especially among Black youth. 360 Kids has been working towards addressing this critical issue and they're hosting a virtual event called Affordable Housing Solution for Black Youth in York Region. Joining me now with some more information is CEO of 360 Kids, Clovis Grant. Welcome to the feed. Oh, I really appreciate this opportunity. We appreciate it as well. Now, Clovis, can you tell us about how the idea for this specific info session came about? Absolutely. Uh, and, and I think it goes back to the work of 360 Kids, which is really about young people. It's about uh, addressing uh, the issues around um, homelessness. And we know that for, for too long, uh, the, the, the focus has been on providing interventions when young people become homeless. And, and more and more, the young people are telling us that we need to think about uh, the things that actually help prevent homelessness. Looking at uh, preventing homelessness, both on the upstream end as well as housing stability, um, making sure that when young people do get housing that they remain housed. And so providing those kinds of upstream and downstream solutions is critical. We also know um, that young people who are black are overrepresented in the homeless population. We see that in York Region, 2.5% of the population is black, but yet anywhere from 12 to, to 13% of the homeless population is, is black. So you see an overrepresentation by fourfold. And so really wanting to provide a solution that's very specific to young people who are black is what, what this project is all about. And, and that's where the, the idea came from, is how do we ensure that this particular segment of, of homeless youth um, have a, a specific solution of, for their needs? It's interesting that you say that because I feel like people think that, you know, we're in York Region. We're like 
an upper middle class type of area. So how is this even possible? How do you come across these statistics and how do you find out that these youth are suffering like this? Socioeconomic factors is one of the, the, the drivers, but it's not the only driver. Um, homelessness amongst young people is due to breakdown in family. That breakdown can happen regardless of what your socioeconomic status is. So yes, your rights, uh, when, when you're talking about your region, it is an upper middle class area, but that doesn't mean homelessness doesn't exist. And in fact, in many of the, the, the suburbs uh, in the GTA, uh, that is a misconception that homelessness is for those in the lower socioeconomics. But in fact, uh, the drivers could be uh, abuse of various kinds. It could be because the young people identifies on the 2S LGBTQ spectrum. Those are drivers that, regardless of your socioeconomic status, will drive young people to, to become homeless, as well as some of the structural factors. And when we were talking about black youth, now you're talking about racism and discrimination, which is a, a big issue throughout the throughout the province, throughout the country. And so the, the intersections have to be addressed when we're talking about uh, these issues. And, and to answer your other part of your question, how do we know? Well, the, the, the region and the United Way, the region of York, the United Way conduct surveys every, uh, every two years that, that look at counting the numbers of homeless individuals. Yes, this is definitely a very important info session that you want to attend. Once again, it's called Affordable Housing Solution for Black Youth in York Region. And if you'd like to join the session on Monday, July 31st from 12 to 1.30 p.m., you can send an email to info at 360kids.ca. Thank you so much to Clovis Grant, the CEO of 360 Kids, for joining us on the feed. After the break, Life on Mars. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Next on the show, a York University team is in Canada's Arctic, where conditions mimic those of the Red Planet. Kevin Frankish with the Arctic Research. A team of researchers from York University has just arrived on Mars. Well, sort of. They're at an Arctic research station in northern Nunavut, the McGill Arctic Research Station, or MARS. Here they are studying the tantalizing biosignature of methane gas, as well as exploiting the similarities here with the planet Mars. Professor Haley Sapers uh, from York U and the California Institute of Technology joins me now from Mars. Hi, Professor. Hello. So tell me, where exactly are you right now? So at this very moment, I am standing within the McGill Arctic Research Station, uh, looking out over the uh, White and Thompson Glaciers on Axel Heiberg Island in uh, northern Nunavut. And what kind of weather are you experiencing right now? Uh, it's actually a beautiful day today. It's sunny, uh, almost no wind. And it is a balmy 12 degrees Celsius. <laughs> well, that's better than I thought it might have been. Okay, so what are you doing there? So we're doing a couple of things as our, on our research project up here. Um, so I'm leading uh, a team. And with me uh, this trip, I have graduate student Elisa Dong. And the two of us are looking at methane gas. So methane is a really important uh, component of the Earth's atmosphere. 
because it's a greenhouse gas and it contributes to, to global warming. Um, methane observations of methane on Mars have also been really interesting. And on Earth, most methane is biogenic. That means it's been produced by, by life and it, at some point along the way. So the observations of methane on Mars is this tantalizing potential biosignature. We don't quite know where the methane on Mars is coming from um, and, where, and where it's going. And so what we're doing is we're up here um, on Axel Hybrid Island and we're testing a new technology. So we're testing a type of spectrometer uh, that we're that we are working with ABB Incorporated, and so ABB is designing the spectrometer, and we're testing it up here to do really rapid, sensitive measurements of methane. And the idea is that this spectrometer could eventually uh, be on a mission to Mars and take really sensitive, rapid measurements of methane on Mars, so we can better characterize and understand the cycles of methane um, on Mars to better understand could this potentially be a signal of life in the Martian subsurface. The other side of the project that we're doing here at the McGill Arctic Research Station and on Axel Hybrid Island is trying to get a better understanding of the processes uh, that are occurring in this, this beautiful region um, and the methane cycling in this region. So we have these hypersaline cold springs. And you know, these, are, these are really interesting springs. Um, they're very saline, so they're at least twice as salty as ocean water. And because they're so salty, they're very cold. Uh, so salt actually depresses the freezing point. So these springs can flow at sub-zero temperatures. And these springs also are in what are known as methane seeps. So there's bubbles of gas escaping from these springs, and a large fraction of that gas is actually methane. Now, there are these microorganisms uh, that actually live in deep submarine methane seeps. And now we're talking about these methane seeps at the bottom of the ocean. And these microorganisms at the bottom of the ocean, actually, they eat methane. So they use methane both for energy and carbon. And in eating the methane, they actually mitigate the release of methane into the Earth's atmosphere. Ocean sediments are really important in controlling the flux of methane um, from the sediments into the atmosphere. A team of researchers uh, from McGill University found genetic evidence of these same microbes in the spring sediments. So it's kind of like a calling card. Uh, they found, okay, these microbes could exist in these springs. And so what I'm doing is I'm collecting some more detailed information about these springs and working collaboratively with a group at the California Institute of Technology to better understand the ability of these microbes to eat methane. So if they're there, are they actually snacking on this methane and preventing subsurface methane from, from reaching the atmosphere? And this is two really important um, implications. One a better understanding of the controls of methane in permafrost regions and in the Arctic can help us understand the implications of, of climate change in these really vulnerable regions. Um, and the other is these, these brines, these really cold, salty brines in these methane seeps up in the Arctic are analogous or similar to what we think might exist in the subsurface of Mars. So if we have these methane-rich brines in the subsurface of Mars, by understanding the types of microbes that could actually be living in them on Earth, 
It's going, hey, okay, so these microbes on Earth can live in this environment. If this environment exists on Mars, could they also be living there? And so it's this way of understanding these environments here on Earth and then comparing them to what some of our models show on, on Mars. And this gets to this whole methane question, this whole methane problem. You know, what's controlling its release? Mm-hmm. What's controlling its disappearance? And what are the different ways that we might be able to explain the observations um, that we have um, from the Curiosity rover on Mars? And we know that that here on Earth, methane is a problem uh, as we have global warming. Uh, the permafrost is sort of releasing what it has been storing for thousands, maybe millions of years. Is it possible then that the methane signatures that we're seeing on Mars could be similar, that, that maybe it, it's from millions of years ago? Yeah, so there's, so there's the methane um, can have multiple sources. So methane can be completely abiotic, so generated by processes that don't require life, and methane can be generated by processes that do require life. And we see both of those signatures up here in the Arctic, so methane that is abiotic and methane that is biogenic. And on Mars, we see a couple of different patterns of methane release. And we don't know how different they are. And so right now, some of the hypotheses are, yes, this is methane that's accumulated over millions or billions of years that's slowly being released. We also know that there are subsurface processes on Mars uh, that generate methane through water-rock interactions. Um, And so you can actually produce methane um, by these really slow processes in, in, in the subsurface. And neither of these processes require life to produce the methane. Um, so yes, that is definitely uh, one way that we could explain the signal of methane on Mars. I think the most fascinating thing is that is that the work you are doing has implications for our journey to Mars, but also for our very survival here on Earth. Oh, for sure. And this is this is one of one of the you know I feel so privileged to be up here being able to do this work in such a, a, a critical environment. And um, we're, we're understanding um, some, some really fundamental things about these microbial communities here um, and help us understand or better understand some of the methane flux um, here in the Arctic. And it, it's just it, it, it's a wonderful place to be able to do this research uh, made possible uh, by the McGill Arctic Research Station. Just before I let you go, let me know a little bit about the conditions you're working under. What's it like doing your work in such a remote part of the world? Um, yes, so uh, we actually are using uh, Starlink Wi-Fi to to conduct this interview right now. And when I was up here here last year, uh, there was no Wi-Fi, so we had very little uh, connection um, to, to to for ourselves. We have Iridium satellite phones. Uh, that were really reserved for emergencies. And we have HF radio check-ins uh, regularly with, with Polar Shelf. And uh, other than that, it, it, it's a beautiful natural laboratory. Um, doing work remotely requires a lot of logistical planning up front. Uh, so I spend about a year uh, meticulously planning the types of samples I will be taking, um, the equipment that I need, the food I need to bring up, um, fuel needs. Um, so that all happens about 
for a year or even two years before the research expeditions because once you're up here, it's very difficult um, to, to, to get more. You know, I, I can't just run out to the store and, and grab, you know, another Sharpie or if we run out of sample bags. Uh, so it's a lot of, of pre-planning. And then of course, you have to be really flexible and, and adaptable to changing conditions. So uh, our original plan actually involved the use of helicopter to get to an even more remote site. Um, unfortunately, uh, due to a number of different circumstances, we don't have a helicopter up here with us. And so I had to, to, to replan and kind of uh, change plans and say, okay, these are the, this is the equipment that I have with me. These are the possible samples I can get. What are some other really important questions that I can ask? Um, and what additional samples can I take? So it really involves being flexible, adaptable, and just a, a lot of planning and, and, and creativity as well as really working with the other teams that are up here. Um, we might all have our very specific research projects that we're working on, but we all help each other out. Uh, so it's really uh, a wonderful place to be able to, to, to conduct this really multidisciplinary research. Well, it sounds like fascinating work. I wish you all the luck with it. And uh, thanks for taking time to uh, speak with me. Thank you very much. Professor Haley Sapers joining me from Mars in northern Nunavut. The next ride is a little closer to home. We are cycling the best bike spots in York Region. The 2023 UCI World Cycling Championships are taking place in August in Glasgow, and a big part of it will be York Region's Aurora's very own Steve Fleck, who's a live announcer, sports commentator, specialty in long-distance races and cycling, and he's going to be part of the announce team calling the track cycling races. It's really exciting. Steve, welcome to the feed. How are you? Oh, so excited to be here, Jim. Thanks for having me on the show, and really looking forward to getting over to Glasgow in about 10 days' time uh, to get into this. Well, I, and, and one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on is the sport of cycling has exploded in the region, in the province, across the country. You can't go anywhere on a weekend and not see little pelotons of recreational or competitive riders everywhere. I mean, it's become a major league sport in this province. Well, cycling, if you get outside and look at the bigger picture, Jim, you've talked on it. There's lots of people out riding. But outside of North America, after soccer, in many, many countries around the world, the number two sport in terms of fan base that's followed, the media follows, is cycling. Mm. doesn't get that as much coverage and as popular in North America, in Canada, and the U.S., but outside of uh of North America, it's it's huge, and this UCI Super World Championships—the first time they've ever done that—is is, is going to be a really really big deal. Now, when I think of cycling races, I think of the road races, the mountain bike, and the velodrome. But but one thing that I think is kind of cool is BMX is a big part of it, both freestyle and BMX racing, and that's been real integrated into the whole genre of cycling. So the four Olympic disciplines, if you will, Jim, BMX. Uh, mountain biking, road cycling, and track cycling will all be contested uh, in Glasgow. There's a whole other bunch of non-use um, sort of Olympic program mm. cycling disciplines like trials um, and, uh, and artistic cycling. I didn't even know some of these existed. And they'll also be part of the program in Glasgow starting uh, early in August. 
Um, I, I guess before we get to some notable Canadians, the one thing that attracts me to cycling is that it's an accessible sport for people of all ages and basically all incomes. I mean, you can get a, a simple low-cost bike or a state-of-the-art bike and have as much enjoyment out of it. Jim, I was just announcing at the Toronto Triathlon Festival on the weekend, and we had competitors. Now, this is a triathlon, but cycling's involved in that. Mm. We, had, we had competitors that were in their late 70s, uh, we even had one guy that I think he was 79. He turns 80 next month. So indeed, it it's open to anyone. You talked about it a bit. I mean, it's accessible. You can do it pretty much anywhere. The bikes can be a little bit of expensive, but you don't have to spend like an enormous amount of money to get an entry level bike. Okay, a question I had, and and knowing that you, we were going to be talking, a few listeners sent me messages. Why are racing seats so small and narrow as opposed to regular bike seats? Because it seems confusing to a lot of us. Well, the the simple the simple answer is that if you're competing at a high level, if you're an advanced level cyclist, you're putting more pressure or power through the pedals, so there's less um, there's less uh, I guess contact pressure on the saddle, if you will. Oh. So the the fitter you are the more sort of high performance, if I will, if I can say that, the less saddle issues you tend to have. I'm not saying people, you know, recreational cyclists, um, you know, they will tend to ride on, on a larger sort of more padded saddle than a more advanced cyclist. That's just, that's just a generalism sort of within cycling. Okay, did that make sense? Because that's a question a lot of people have between, say, a, like a quote-unquote regular bike and a high-performance bike. So you know when you see that smaller, thinner seat that this is someone very serious about high-performance cycling. 100%. 100%. I, I mean, I could go on for, you know, do a probably a 10 or 15-minute dissertation <laughs> on that, but that, that was the simplest answer I could come up with quickly, Jim. I, I know we have a lot of pride as Canadians. Anytime there's an international competition, are there some notable Canadians that we should be watching out for at these World Cycling Championships? Two, two that I want to point out, maybe a third. So Kelsey Mitchell is the defending Olympic champion in the sprint event. She has been a, a total sensation, amazing story on the women's side in track cycling. She only got into track cycling maybe about five or six years ago, but within four years, she was the Olympic champion. Um, she had a bit of a down year last year, uh, but she's coming back. She's getting ready for Paris, so watch out for her. Another great story on the men's side is Derek G. Derek will be competing in, in many races in Glasgow. He's going to be competing on the track. He's going to be competing in road racing. He had an amazing story in May where he finished second in the Giro d'Italia, which is kind of the second yes. most famous sort of bike race in the world next to the Tour de France, Derek finished second on four stages, you know, at the Giro. But he started in track cycling. His start in terms of his progress forward uh, to higher level cycling was on the track. So I'm excited to see Derek. A third story that I'm going to be following is the triathlete Paula Findlay. Paula Findlay uh, is one of the best triathletes in the world at the mid-distance events. These are half-iron distance events. She won the Canadian Road Time Trial Championships amongst the best road cyclists in Canada the last two years and was recently named to the team, the Canadian team, will be competing in Glasgow in the individual time trial. This is significant. So those are three, those are three athletes and riders that quickly come to mind that 
I'm going to be really interested in following. Derek and Kelsey are going to be competing on the track. As you had mentioned, I'm going to be doing some of the announcing at the track, so super excited to watch them race against the best in the world. Speaking of the Roar, Steve Fleck, longtime announcer and commentator, he'll be a big part of the announce team for track cycling races of the World Cycling Championships coming up in August in Glasgow. And, and maybe for me it was Kurt Harnett and his success, but the velodrome is something that fascinates me in cycling. The strategy that goes into it, when to make your move, when not to make your move. And I don't know, to me it lends itself to a great fan experience. 100%, Jim. I mean, there is no more exciting racing, and I cover a lot of events in endurance sports and in, within the sport of cycling, but track cycling is so intimate. There's only going to be about 4,000, 5,000 people inside the Chris Hoy Velodrome in Glasgow. We have a similar setup here in Milton at the Mountain National Cycling Center, and you are so close to the action, and the riders in the sprint events like the Kieran, for example, they're finishing up at close to 80 kilometers an hour. And we have races that finish within a thousandth of a second. Uh, a photo finish, literally the width of a tire, is the difference between first and second sometimes. Super so that, exciting. That's what I was going to ask. So that is how they determine it with the photo finish and basically whose tire is a little bit ahead of the next. That's it. it, it, it I've, I've, I've commentated and announced at maybe in the last, four or five years, five or six races on the track that have gone down to the thousands of the finish, and it's actually taken them a couple of minutes to sort out who finished first and second. Um, you know, I, I know you tweet about it, and it's something that's front and center to a lot of people, the safety of cyclists, a recreational, competitive, people just trying to stay fit, sharing the roads and sharing, whether it's in, in the region, in the country, or in the city, how can we be better as a society to make sure that people who want to go out for a bike ride can be safe? They're going to make it home. I get back to the message of just sharing the roads, Jim. I mean, again, this is something I could go on for a 15, 20-minute dissertation on. But, I mean, the roads are public spaces. It's pretty simple. Bikes are allowed to be there. Cars are allowed to be there. Pedestrians are also, in some cases, crossing those roads and those thoroughfares or, or using them. It's a shared space. That's it. I mean, you know, just just share the road. Look out for your fellow person, your human being on the road, and just exercise some caution around them. That's if the same if it's another vehicle on the road, another driver, a cyclist, or a pedestrian. So share the road is, is always my big message. And, and any tips for someone who lives in Aurora? I'm sure you've cycled up to Georgina or maybe through Stolva or wherever. Is there some go-to areas in the rural areas of the region that you like to cycle that's a really good spot? Well, Warden is super popular. I mean, you go out on Warden on any Saturday or Sunday morning, you know, through the nicer weather months of the year, and there's a constant stream of cyclists up and down Warden. There's also some, some great roads. Uh, Lakeshore Drive up in, in Sutton along the south shore of uh, Lake Simcoe is absolutely spectacular and, and beautiful. The Holland Marsh, I mean, I know that you would think, well, why would I go up to the Holland Marsh? Well, you actually see agricultural practices in action and also out on the Holland Marsh there's less traffic it's usually just farm vehicles and cyclists you know riding around and the Holland Marsh is really flat so if you're worried about you know riding on big hills you can ride for an hour two hours around the Holland Marsh and actually never see a hill and you think you're cycling in Belgium or Holland because it's nice and flat that's right, <laughs> that's right. You, you're kind of riding along and you think, oh my God, I, I am in Belgium or, or, or Holland, hence the Holland, Holland Mars. So it, it's a bit of a, a throwback or a, a displace to some other place around uh, the, this wonderful planet and you don't feel like you're in southern Ontario.
Steve, I'm a big fan of your work and what you do to promote endurance sports and cycling and that. You do great work, and I look forward to your commentary and uh, following you on social media at the World Cycling Championships. Thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. Appreciate the time, Jim. Thank you so much. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.